Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at, the, uh, look at your word. We ask you to teach us and help us to see what you would want us to see. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And Solomon determined to build a house for the name of the Lord and a house for his kingdom. And Solomon told out 70,000 men to bear burdens, 80,000 to hew in the mountain, and 3,600 to oversee them. So let's stop with that for just a moment. Solomon has become king. His father, David, told him to build the temple because he said that God said that he was going to build the temple and he gave him all the stuff. And Solomon says he determined he intended to build a, a house for the name of the Lord or the temple and his own palace. And it seems kind of strange, but this is something that has happened a lot. Each king made his own palace. I've always kind of wondered, and I really haven't done a lot of study on what happened to the old palace. <laughs> You know, if every king makes a palace, what happened, you know, maybe, maybe when they made it, they were just adding on and making it theirs. I don't know. But Solomon, when you look back in the past, he made something that was his own. <laughs> and uh, so he is deciding to start a building program. And Solomon is going to be very well known in history for his buildings and his public works that he did. And it says that he took 70,000 people to bear burdens. Now he's taken 70,000 people just to carry stuff. (laughs) That's a lot of people. Uh, And not only that, he takes 80,000 people to hew in the mountain. And this word for hew means either stone or wood or probably both in many cases. But he's using 80,000 people to cut the rocks and the timber for the temple in his palace. Yeah, this is a huge arm. I mean, this is a huge, huge endeavor that he's putting together. And, and then on all top of that, he gets uh, 3,600 men just to oversee everything, the supervisors. And that's not too bad. I mean, each supervisor had to watch a whole lot of people, but, and there had to be some other supervisors other than them. But, uh, but he's building up this huge number of people, over 150,000 workers to build the temple and to build his palace. Now remember, David has already cut, had the blocks cut and most of the lumber cut, so I think most of these people are going to be just putting things together and working on his palace as he goes along because most of them aren't having to do a whole lot other than carry all the stuff that David has already laid out for them. And so we have this huge army that's being put together to build the building. And I can't even imagine this endeavor of uh, 150,000 workers (laughs) to to build for him. Now we look in verse 3. And Solomon sent to... Hiram, the king of Tyre, saying, As you did deal with, my, with David, my father, and did send him cedars to build him a house to dwell therein, even so do, do, deal with me. Behold, I build a house to the name of the Lord my God to dedicate it to him and to burn before him sweet incense 
and for the continual showbread and for the burnt offerings morning and evening and on the Sabbaths and on the new moons and on the solemn feasts of the Lord our God, this is an ordinance forever to Israel. And the house which I build is great, for great is our God above all gods. Who, but who is able to build him a house, seeing the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a house, save only to burn sacrifices before him? Send me, therefore, a cunning man to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in iron and in purple and in crimson and blue, and that can skill to carve with cunning men that are with me in Judah and in Jerusalem, whom David my father did provide. Send me also cedars, fir trees, and algum trees out of Lebanon, for I know that your servants can, can skill to cut timber in Lebanon, and behold, my servants shall be with your servants, even to prepare the timber in abundance, for the house which I am about to build shall be wonderfully great. And behold, I will give to your servants the hewers that cut timber, 20,000 measures of beaten wheat, 20,000 measures of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. All right, so here we have Solomon arranging for even more stuff <laughs> to come to build this house. And so he is writing to Hiram, the king of Tyre. Now Hiram, if you read back in 2 Samuel uh, 5 verse, uh, verse 11, Hiram gave David the wood for his palace, the, the cedar trees and all of that stuff that was involved in his. And he said, I want you to help me just the way you helped my father. Now the tone of this letter is, to me sounds more like a demand, but you've got to remember Tyre is part of the kingdom, so he's, he is kind of saying, okay, you're king in name only over your area. Give this to me. But he's also going to bargain with him to give him something in return. Um, but he's very demanding in this letter, in the tone of it. And he says, I'm going to build a house to the name of the Lord my God to dedicate it to him. So here we have Solomon using this is my God. And I, and I catch this because this is a big deal. Solomon has moved from it being the God of his father to my God. Now he's going to forget it later on in his life as he starts dealing with other, other gods. But he, right now he's saying, we're going to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. And I want to just bring out, we want, and I pointed this out many times, when you see the name of God, the way that it's printed there, it is all the reputation and honor and desire of God. Uh, I was hearing one of the pastors today saying even more than that, it is when you go out to represent your own government, if you're an ambassador, you represent your, the name of your country. Everything you do, everything you, does, everything you do <laughs> flashes back to, the, uh, to, that, to your country. This is saying, I'm going to build something that is worthy of the reputation of God. And he even helps Hiram out because he's going, and just in case you don't know Hiram, this is our God. And he's going to go through this. And he says, and I will dedicate it to him to burn unto him sweet incense and for the continual showbread. So we're going to stop. Remember that in the holy place, 
they had the altar of incense where they would keep the oil burning all the time. They also had the showbread on there where they would put the, the loaves on there uh, sprinkled with the frankincense and the oil representing the 12 tribes of Israel because there were 12 loaves of bread, oil, the Holy Spirit, and then the frankincense of the prayers of the, of the people. And you had the menorah that had oil that was burning all the time in there. So here he's saying, I'm going to build a temple that is going to be able to have the holy place. And he's leaning out, leaving out each of the parts of the holy place because he's talking to a non-Jewish person. And he's giving them this. And then he says, and we're going to burn these offerings in the morning and the evening, on the Sabbath, on the new moons, on the solemn feast of the Lord our God. Every morning they would offer a sacrifice at the temple. Every evening they would offer a sacrifice at the temple. During the middle of the day they, they were doing it for the people, but the morning and evening for, were sacrifices for all the people. So God was always getting a sacrifice for all the people. On the Sabbath, every Saturday, they would offer sacrifices to God, not just in the morning and evening, but in the middle, middle of the day sacrifice because that was the Sabbath. Every new moon, they would offer a sacrifice on. And then all during the seven major feasts, they would offer sacrifices. And so you think about this, there's a lot of sacrifices being done at the tabernacle before this and at the temple when Solomon builds the temple. Twice a day minimum. During the Sabbath, there's more sacrifices. During the new moon, there'd be another sacrifice. Uh, and then the seven major feasts, there would be sacrifices. On the seven major feasts, all the people would come, especially on three of them. Every male was supposed to come to, to the tabernacle and offer sacrifices. So on those days, there was a lot of sacrifices. Before there was a temple, they did it at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was built in Sinai. And right now, this tabernacle is in Gibeon. But the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem. It was a standing building. Huh? It was a tent. They could move it wherever they wanted to move it because that's what God used for them. And that tent was used up until the point of time when the temple was put in its place. And David said God gave him the plan for the, te the temple. So we have all these sacrifices that Solomon is telling him. And then Solomon tells Hiram, this is the ordinance of God forever to Israel. Now, we think about this. Most of the laws that God gave Israel, were, especially the ceremonial laws, were for them to show that they were a unique people. One of the biggest debates that we have going on right now is, should we as Gentiles and Christians do no work on the Sabbath? And lots of people will argue that all. I would point you to the various verses that say that the Sabbath is a sign of the Jews to the Gentiles. Over and over again, God said, this is our sign. And people thought the Jews were strange, especially in the old days, because uh, that or that they were lazy. They go, you guys are so lazy, you have to take a vacation one day a week. 
You know, you have to take a vacation every seven days at a time when everybody was working seven days a week. They would look at the Jews and say, you guys are just a bunch of lazy people. Nowadays, they don't appear so lazy because most of the world has at least two days off, if not three days off a week. But in the past, they were, everybody was working seven days a week and people would look at them and go on, you guys are a lazy bunch of people. And that was God's sign to the world that they were different. They were called into a different lifestyle, a different way of doing things. And so we see this going on and Solomon saying, we have these rules that are our sign between us and God. And this kind of statement is why Orthodox Jews, even today, are desperately wanting to get a temple built again. They want the temple, they want their sacrifices going on. Because right now, all they do is they pray in the morning and the evening, they pray, you know, and they pray on the, on the new moons, and they, and they do these special, special events, but they're, they're, they're really saying, we're supposed to be giving a burnt sacrifice at these times, and it's really bothering them that they can't. It's bothering them that on uh, Rosh Hashanah that they can't offer a sacrifice for sins. And what are the rabbis telling them? Well, because we can't share blood at a temple, then just do more good works than bad works, and you're going to be okay. And then the Orthodox are saying, but God says <laughs> that there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood, because that's an Old Testament statement, even though we reference it in Hebrews. And so they're struggling with how do we worship God the way he tells us to, without a temple or a tabernacle or someplace that is special. What stopped them from building a temple? Because they want to build it on the Temple Mount, which right now has the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is built on the Temple Mount. And right now, if they were to build it, the Muslims would rebel, even if they tried to share the mountain, which is going to be the ultimate answer. The Antichrist will come along and say, okay, you share the mountain, you can build the temple, your temple on the site that it is supposed to be on, which is just down from the Dome of the Rock. The foundation of the, the original temple has been found by radiometric uh, things, and it'll fit into what Ezekiel was told. Ezekiel was told to measure the, the third temple and not include the court of the Gentiles, which is where the door, because it was given to the Gentiles, which is where the Dome of the Rock currently stands. It would be where the, would, is where the court of the Gentiles would go to. It would, it would start a war right now. But the Antichrist will, will come as a man of peace and he'll say, well, we can build two temples in there. And because he is Satan, you know, Satan is like, nobody's going to oppose him because he's the master of both. He's the master of that religion. As we go on here, he's, he's saying all these things are going on. There's all these works, all these things. He says, I want to build this house. And then in verse 5 it says, and the house that I build is great, for great is the Lord above all gods. I love this statement. It is going to be great. Why? Because God deserves something equal to who he is, and he's, going, and he's going to later on say, and I can't even get close to him. <laughs> you know, but I've got to give him something really great. Now, this mentality has gone back and forth all through the ages of worshiping God. Even for Christians, there have been times when people have said, we are building a 
place to worship God, so therefore it has to be great, just like Solomon does. And we have these great cathedrals all around the world you know, that are huge and decorative with lots of money thrown into them. And people were saying, we're doing this to honor God. God is great, so we need to make this great, big, beautiful <laughs> building. And we've even got churches in America that followed that pattern. There are huge, beautiful churches. We are currently in a time where people look and say, why are we wasting so, why would you waste so much money on a building when we need to be out there evangelizing? <laughs> and we build these little storefronts and, and stuff that don't look anything like a church and go, and this is a cycle that goes up and for, down, back and forth over the, over the centuries and, and decades. You can look and see this ebb and flow where I have to build this beautiful building because I'm doing it for God's sake. And then, well, but we've got to be very steward, good stewards of our money. So we're not going to put it all in the building. We're going to use it to support missionaries and whatever else. <laughs> Which one's right? I don't know. I really don't care. Each person's going to have to answer to God on that. I, I understand the idea of doing something nice and beautiful for God. I also understand the idea of not spending a lot of money and putting it into evangelism and, and everything else that goes on. But along with that same mentality comes with the service that we do for God. How wonderful it is it. Our big churches spend lots of money on, on their church, lots of money on their sound systems and laser lights and, and everything to look good to the world. The small churches say, well, we're, gonna, we're just going to try to serve God the best we can with the money we've got and don't get into all of that stuff. And so which one's right? I don't know if there is a right or wrong on either one of them. It's something that's gone back and forth. But Solomon says, I'm going to build a building that is great enough to honor our great God. And I love the way he says it to uh, Hiram, for great is our God above all gods. <laughs> because Hiram was not a Jew. So he's saying, we're going to build this, and we're going to build this because our God is great, and he is better than all the gods. So what's he saying? Our temple's got to be better than any other temple that exists out there because we have the great God. All right? And it really was. The temple that Solomon built was a temple that was one of the great wonders of the world with all the gold, with billions and, you know, equivalent to our, billions of dollars worth of gold in it and in the size of it. And it says, but who is able to build him a house? Right? So even as he's saying, we're going to build this great building for God, he's saying, and who can build a house for God? Seeing that the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Now this is quite an interesting statement because we always think of heaven as being what they would have called the heaven of heavens. Paul, in his epistle, says that he knew a man that entered into the third heaven. The Greek way of thinking of it was the third heaven. And so what is ending up happening here, we, when we talk about the heaven and the heavens of heavens, we have our atmosphere is considered heaven to, to them. It's an atmosphere circling the earth. Then you have the heavens where the stars and the moons and the planets are in. And then you have the heaven of heavens where God dwells. Now for the Greeks, it would have been where Mount Olympus was and the gods dwelt, same, same type of thing. Uh, for here, Solomon saying, I'm going to build him a house and heaven, and from the Jewish perspective, heaven re 
you had the atmosphere, and then you had the stars and moons, and then you had the heaven of heavens, which were, is where God dwells. And he says, even the heavens of heaven is not big enough to contain God, and I'm thinking about building him a little house here on, on this earth. Uh, he understood how big God was. He really did understand how big God was, and this is what he's, you know, I can almost picture him saying, you know, my dad told me to build this place, but I really don't know how we can build a house that is going to contain God when nothing can contain him. All right, so he's having the right attitude, and then, it's, then he asks the question, who am I then that I should build him a house? Nothing can do this, but I'm going to build him a house when, you know, and you can picture this. God owns everything. And Solomon understands that, and he's looking and saying, you know, we think we have accumulated lots of stone, lots of gold, lots of silver, and we're going to give it to God, and yes, it's a big deal to us, but to God, it's nothing. And this is something we have to understand. Whatever we give to God is just a pittance compared to what he deserves to get. And this is what Solomon is saying. And then he says, you know, who am I that I should build this house save only to burn sacrifices before him? Because God had told them that all the sacrifices were to be burnt at the tabernacle or the temple when this, as it comes into. They were not, and they were told very clearly, you are not to go burn, build altars and sacrifice wherever you want. He goes, it must be, burnt, must be offered at the tabernacle. And so He's getting ready to build a temple. He's going, I'm going to build a temple. I'm going to build a house to God. The only thing I can do here, we're going to burn the sacrifices because that's what God said to do. Solomon is given an example that he has studied the word of God. He knows knows what's going on. Verse 7 says, Send me now, therefore, a man cunning to work in gold and silver and brass and iron and purple and crimson and blue and that can that can skill to, to carve with the cunning men that are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom my David, my father, has did provide. So apparently Solomon has looked at all of his people, and he goes, I really don't have an artisan capable of doing what I want for the temple. Which is kind of surprising. Instead of praying and saying, God, would you provide you know, skilled labor just as we did with Brazil and I can't remember the other guy's name from the original tem- tabernacle, he says, I'll go outside. I'll go, you know, Tyre is known for its artisans. I'll get somebody from them to work with my people. And you look what he's asking for. And this is kind of an amazing. He wants somebody who can work with gold and silver, basically be able to do jewelry type work, and work in brass and iron, the more substantial things. And not only has he, does he have to be somebody who's a metal, metallurgy, he has to be able to work with purple and crimson and blue linen, and who is skilled, skill, uh, skilled in engraving. Uh, he's wanting quite an artisan here. He wants one person to be in charge of just about everything when I was thinking about this, he's kind of looking for a general contractor for all the intricate detail work. All right, um, he wants somebody who can work with the metallurgy, with with the linen, and with the in- engraving. Uh, quite a quite a skill set. All right, and apparently he's looking and he says they he will work with the cunning men that are with me. 
But apparently as he's looking at all of his artisans, he had no one person that could do all of these jobs. And he's saying, I need, I need somebody to oversee this work. Then, now, I think in my case, I would have said, I want a Jewish leader. I'm going to find one of the Jewish cunning men that is good with, with uh, metallurgy. I'll find one that's good with linen. And then I'll find one <laughs> with, uh, that can do the carving and the engraving. But that isn't the route he went with. Could he be listening to God? I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Because uh, it doesn't say. Uh, so his first, off, his first request of Hiram is, he initially said, send me wood from, from there. Now he's asking him for a basically general contractor for all the intricacies. And then in verse 9, we go back to wood. Even... Uh, excuse me, eight. Send me cedar trees and fir trees and algum trees out of Lebanon, for I know that your servants can, can, can skill to cut timber in Lebanon, and behold, my servants shall be with your servants. All right, so he's asking for, for wood. Primarily cedar. The cedars of Lebanon are well known even to this day. He goes, send me fir trees and algum trees. I did some research, nobody knows what an algum tree is. <laughs> they go, they, they, it's just one of those words that they don't know what it is. People give all kinds of guesses in it. But it's some type of tree that came out of Lebanon. I think it was some type of finishing wood that was hard and used for decoration. We don't know, and it could be any, just about any kind of wood. Uh, and there's lots of words in the Hebrew and even in the Greek that we don't really know what they mean. Uh, because they were specialty words. They were known by the people who used them. And we have all those kind of words even in English. Uh, and I've said this before, but I remember it so well. It was on the, on the radio, Christian radio channel, and there's, one of their sponsors was a, was a place that did drapes and stuff. And they had names for all the different side ports. And, you know, I don't even remember all the names of the drapes myself. And this person from Australia said, we, well, in Australia, we don't even have those those words, and I'm thinking, yes, you do. You just don't know them. Okay. Same thing we have in the Old Testament sometimes. When they name woods, they name gems, they name these, they name animals. It was just such specialty words. We may not know what they mean. And algum, I mean, he asked for cedar, he asked for fir. Algum, I would, I would say it's maybe very close to finishing wood. Cedar, cedar is too, so who knows what, what it was. Uh, somebody who really knows carpentry and wood would probably say, would it be this, that, or the other thing? And I wouldn't argue with them. I don't know. It just, I did a lot of research trying to find out what it was. But he says, send me all these. Why? Because I know that your people basically are good lumberjacks. <laughs> They're good lumberjacks, and I know that you can provide this. And he says, and by the way, I will send my servants to help you. Now, what are they helping with? Are they actually going to cut down the trees by the sound of this? No, they're probably going to haul the logs wherever they're needing to go to. All right? Uh, because he said, he's praising him, says, your people are the lumberjacks, I'm gonna, but I'm going to send my people to help you. Two things he might be looking for. My people are going to get to learn how to be lumberjacks, <laughs> or I'm just going to help you out a lot. And, I, and I'm not sure which way it goes. Uh, and then in verse 9 says, even to prepare me lumber in abundance for the house which I am about to build shall be a wonderful great. So he says, I'm getting ready to build a really big house and I need lots and lots of lumber. 
He's going to build two houses, as a matter of fact, the house for God and his, and his, uh, and his uh, palace. And then he says in verse 10, And behold, I will give to your servants the hewers that cut timber, 20,000 measures of beaten, beaten wheat, 20,000 measures of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. Now, I know we all know what measures and baths are, so we can just skip this, right? <laughs> so he's saying, I'm going to give you, this is what I'm going to pay you for all this wood. Approximately 125,000 bushels of wheat, and this is beaten wheat, so it's going to be already husked and everything, which is a lot of wheat. 125,000 bushels of barley, approximately 211,337 gallons of wine, and 211,337,000 gallons of oil. Uh, even by that standard, even by today's standard, by today's standard, that's a lot of stuff. So he says, this is his ending, okay? I want you to do these things, and oh, by the way, I'll pay you to do it. <laughs> and he just kind of tacked on at the end of, the, end of his little message to, to Hiram. All right? You know, give me, give me all this lumber. Give me, give me somebody to be the master, master uh, contractor of all these workers, and give me lots of, lots of this very valuable lumber. And oh, by the way, this is what I'm going to give you. Now, I didn't bother to try to figure out the cost of that, but... It's a lot of money, <laughs> a lot of money, 120, 125,000 bushels of anything is a lot of, a lot of grain, all right? And he's sending it in both wheat and barley. And I do know that 211,000 plus gallons of wine and oil, it's a lot of, a lot of wine and oil. <laughs> um, so he's being very generous for what he's asking for, but he's asking for a lot in return. <laughs> all right, so now we have Hiram's answer. Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, answered in writing, which he sent to Solomon, because the Lord hath loved his people and hath made you king over them. Hiram said, moreover, blessed be the Lord God of Israel that made heaven and earth, who have given to David a king, the king a wise son, endued with prudence and understanding, that might build a house to the Lord and a house for his kingdom. And now I have sent a cunning man, endued with understanding of Hiram, my, fa my father's, a son of a woman of the daughters of Dan, and his father was a man of Tyre, skillful in the work of gold and silver and brass and iron and stone and in, in, in timber and in purple and blue and fine linen and in crimson, also to grave any manner of graving and to find out any, uh, every device which shall be put to him with your cunning men and with the cunning men of your my lord David, your father. Now therefore the wheat and the barley and the oil and the wine which my lord has spoken of, let him send these unto his servant and we will cut wood out of Lebanon as much as you shall need and we will bring it to you in, in floats by the sea to Joppa and you shall carry it up to Jerusalem. All right, here's Hiram's answer. <laughs> he goes, basically nice polite thing, he goes, because the Lord has loved his people and made you king over them. Just starting out, you know, you have been honored. Hiram seems to have some understanding of God, at least enough to be able to speak the right words. <laughs> we do know that Tyre did not worship God, so I'm sure he did not worship God, but he at least knows the right words to say. 
and you see the flattery. Yeah, this is kind of an interesting thing. You, these huge documents between kings are always start out with the flattery. <laughs> You know, uh, if you watch any of the old shows, oh, king, live forever. <laughs> uh, and that actually was said in most of those kingdoms, you know, and it's like, I know you're not going to live forever, but go ahead and we're going to tell you to live together. We're going to play up to your pride <laughs> and, your, and your vanity. <laughs> so he's doing all this, and he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel that hath made heaven and earth. So he's giving them the right title as far as the Jews are concerned. The one who has made heaven and earth and has given David a, a king, a wise son, endued with prudence and understanding. Somebody who understands what's going on, that can make, has insight, and is cunning and discerning. That he might build the house to the Lord and the house to, for his kingdom. So he's going to build the temple. In the, and it says, now I have sent a cunning man endued with understanding. A son of a woman of the daughters of Dan and... His father was a man of Tyre. So what is this man? He's basically a half-breed to the Jews. <laughs> He's sending him somebody who understands Judaism because his mother was a Jew. His father is a man of Tyre. Uh, as far as the people are concerned, they would not be very happy with him, but this is the man that's coming to help them. And he's very wise. And I want to just note on here, um, he said, is he skillful? to work in gold, in silver, in iron, in brass, and stone, and in timber. He's added two characteristics that Solomon did not ask for. Solomon asked for a metallurgy, somebody who could work with linen, and work with graving. And he says, oh, oh, by the way, I'm sending you somebody that can work in everything that you wanted, plus he can carve wood and, and chisel and, and carve the, the stones for you. So he's getting more, he's saying, Solomon, I've got the right man for you. He's part Jewish anyway, so he understands what you, what you would want as a Jew. And he's everything you asked for plus. He has more ability than what you asked for. And he's also able to work in purple, blue, fine linen, and crimson, and also to grave any manner of graving and to find out any device which you shall put, him, put to him. So in other words, he goes, if you give him any task... This man can get it done. And there are people out there that seem to be able to just be creative enough that you say, I want this, and somehow they create it. Uh, even though it's something that may be brand new in their, in their mindset, never been done before, there are people that just say, if you can tell them what you want, they'll get it created. And he's saying, this is that man. You just tell him what you want, and he'll get it done. And, uh, and, he, and to find out any... With, which shall be put to him with your cunning men and with the cunning men of my Lord David, your father. In other words, he's saying he's also somebody who can supervise and teach. So this is quite a man. I don't know who this man was. It doesn't name him. And then after he says, okay, we've got all this, he goes, verse 15, now therefore the wheat, the barley, the oil, and the wine, which my Lord has spoken of, let him send to a servant. <laughs> says, by the way, I, I, want your, I, want, I want all those gifts that you talked about. And he says, and we will cut wood out of Lebanon as much as you need and we will bring it to you by floats by, uh, in floats by sea to Joppa and you shall carry it to Jerusalem. So they were cutting the wood in, in Lebanon, taking it down to the Mediterranean, 
tying all those logs together into little, little rafts, basically, floating them down along the beach to Joppa, <laughs> and saying, okay, Solomon, here they are. We got them as far as Joppa. You drag them all the way up that hill to, <laughs> to Jerusalem. So we see that he really needed his 70,000 uh, burden carriers because they're going to, they did not have big logging trucks to be able to do this. Now, I'm sure they had wagons and, and, and animals to help them because you've got to remember that Jerusalem is all uphill. Anywhere in Israel you go, Jerusalem is uphill. It's, in the, it's on a big mountain in the center of Israel. So anytime, anytime you talk about going to Jerusalem, you're talking about going up to Jerusalem. Anytime you're leaving Jerusalem, you're going down from Jerusalem. And they literally meant you were going up and down uh, because of the elevation of Jerusalem. Uh, so he says, I'll, we'll get it to Joppa. You get it from there. Now, well, we're going to get it down to the Mediterranean. We're going to tie it up into rafts. We'll get it down to Joppa. And from Joppa, you get to drag it, carry it, put it on carts, however you want to get it there. <laughs> you're going to take the, these floats, these rafts apart, put them on whatever transportation you're going to use to get there, and you're going to take it up to Jerusalem. So he's being very, very kind. And I just love this. And he goes, oh, and by the way, the, the, those things that you said you were going to send to us, the, the wheat, the barley, the oil, and the, the wine, send them our way. <laughs> send them our way. We're, we're ready for them, and, in, and we'll give you as much wood as you need. All right? I get to feed my people, and especially my court, <laughs> and you get to have your wood. So this is the deal that was being made, and this is kind of a very political, political exchange. Solomon could have just ordered it, but he's going to go ahead and buy it from them. He's going to make sure that he is being honest and useful to them on this. But Solomon has given them a good exchange. A good exchange, plenty, plenty of food and stuff to all this lumber that he's going to get from them. And he's going to use a lot of his haulers to get this <laughs> wood from Joppa up to Jerusalem. And I am glad I'm not one of those haulers. <laughs> all right. Verse 17. And Solomon numbered the strangers that were in the land of Israel after the numbering wherein, wherewith David his father had numbered them. And there were found 153,600. And he set 70,000 of them to bear the burdens and 80,000 of them to be hewers of the mountain and 3,600 overseers to set the people at work. So now they're repeating what we read at the very beginning. He numbered the strangers. What does that mean? The aliens of the, of the area. If they weren't Jewish. So these 153,600 people are those that are not Jews. They are aliens to living in the land. And Solomon says, okay, you get to work. You get, you get to do the work that I don't want my people to have to do. Sounds kind of familiar. Every country to this day takes the aliens, you know, the strangers, the aliens, the non-citizens, and puts them to work and doing the jobs that the citizens don't want to do. And the richer the nation is, the more likely this scenario is to happen. And we're seeing it even in America. There are jobs that the citizens don't want to do because they are beneath them. Even if they're poor, 
they don't want to do the certain jobs. And, you know, they don't want to go out and pick the berries in the farms. They don't want to pick the cotton. They don't want to, you know, do the cleaning of stuff. And so there is a great, even in our country, underground employment of these non-citizens that don't have the right to work in the country, but everybody kind of nods their heads, saying, well, they're doing the jobs nobody else wants to do, and we need to get those jobs done. Solomon's doing the same thing. He's taken the non-citizens, all 153,600 of them, and saying, I am going to put you to work. Yeah. <laughs> so he takes these people and he says, all right, 70,000 of you, you're going to go back and you're going to be going back and forth to, from Jerusalem to Joppa hauling wood. You're going to be up in the mountains where they're cutting, cutting the stone, and you're going to haul those stones from the mountain, mountains where they're at to Jerusalem. And that's all uphill. And all uphill. All this labor is uphill. Now, again, I don't know if there were any animals helping them haul. I don't know if there were any kind of wagons or, or what was going on. We do know that he had a huge army of 70,000 just to, just to haul this stuff, and that was their job. And these were non-citizens of the, of the land. So he did not bring the Jewish people in to be the ones to do the laboring. And this is something that does happen in just about every uh, empire. When the empire gets rich enough, the, the citizens tend to get lazy. And we've seen, if, you, if you've gone through history, it happened in Egypt, in, in Babylon, in Greece, in Rome. When, it, when the place gets rich enough, they get idle. And they stop having, you know, funny thing is they stop having children because children get in the way of them having fun with all their money. And exactly what we're seeing happening here in America. There are people that, that say, well, I can't have children. I'm having too much fun. And if I have a child, I won't be able to have as much fun. And children are looked at as a nuisance to couples now. And we see, that especially the further they put off having children, and they'll start out, well, I'm not going to have children until I have enough money to, do, to, to be able to afford them, which is never. But then they get used to the lifestyle that they're living at that higher rate of pay, going out to dinner you know, three or four times a week, you know, going out to the shows, just running off to go do something for a weekend and they go, well, now we can't have a kid because we won't be able to have all the fun that we're used to you doing. And then they put off the having a kid until they're, you know, 30 or 40 years old and go, well, you know what? We need a family. <laughs> uh, and then they realize how much of a burden the kid is to them because now their lifestyle is all changed. And this happens over and over in these, in these empires. The citizens' re reproductive rate goes into a under one or negative number, which is right now the United States citizens have a negative population growth, all right? Which means that the citizens are not having enough children to replace the citizens as they die. And that's a very true statement because most families now, if they have kids at all, will have one or two kids and never have more than that. The immigrants and the legal and illegal still are having kids, whole bunches of kids. 
And so soon they will outnumber us, and historically, that is a problem. What was Pharaoh's attitude in Egypt when he, when he looked at the children of Israel? Uh, we have a problem here. They're outproducing us. Now, I'm sure their, their population control was probably one or negative as well because they were a affluent empire at that time. And they were used to, and historically, that is what happens. And he's looking at the Israelites having, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids, <laughs> saying, we have a problem here. <laughs> Uh, we're being outnumbered by these people, and then he made them slaves to try to put them under control. And trying to make slaves out of the people that outnumber you is a pretty dangerous thing to do because you will probably get them irritated at you enough for them to rebel. And that's what happened. The, Jew, the Israel peop, Israelites prayed to God and said, we want our deliverance, and God, deliver, and God delivered them. They didn't have to rebel. God delivered them. So we have this going on, and Solomon is taking these people, which isn't that much compared to his population, but it is a pretty good-sized number. His population is running around 600,000 men when David counted them. He's got 150,000 and some change uh, non-citizens non to do this work, strangers in the land. So it's a fairly small number, but it's still about a quarter of the people and in, in, you know, a quarter of what he has are now being used for, for servants. And it doesn't say whether he paid them or enslaved them. He did put them to work. And because he is king in that particular time, he probably enslaved them and said, you're doing this work whether you want to or not because you're not citizens. And we don't know that for sure, and I don't know that for sure, but there's no indication that he paid them. Uh, he just took the strangers in the land and put them to work. We're going to stop here because it is that time. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, finish the chapter. Stopped at 15. I, I read through. We I read through it and we talked about him using it. So we we ended at 18, at the end of 18. So we're going to close in prayer. Lots of things going on here with, with Solomon. He's being wise to get things from other places and pay for them. I would hope that he paid these servants, but it doesn't say that he did. Uh, but he's got a huge army to build his palace and the temple, army of strange you know, workers. And he's going to build some of the most beautiful buildings that have ever been built uh, in the history of man. Lord, we ask you to bless the, this evening. Lord, we ask you to bless tomorrow as we look at Thanksgiving and, and give us great opportunities to fellowship with each other and family. And we thank you for all that you've done. And we thank, ask you to guide and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. 
Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.